And let's take our Bibles now and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 49. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 739. As always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will explore this text together. Today's sermon is entitled, A Kingdom That Cannot Be Shaken. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this remarkable week you've given us. Thank you for allowing us to host that group of pastors on Thursday, to learn alongside of them the principles and practices of good biblical preaching. Lord, would you bless each one of those men as they stand in their pulpits now and expound your word to the congregations that you've entrusted them with. Lord, thank you for this local church. Thank you for bringing us together as one spiritual family. Thank you for the love that we have for one another. Thank you for the servant's heart that each one of these members possesses. Lord, thank you for their willingness to beautify the building and grounds together yesterday and now to regather for worship. Lord, as we explore this passage from Daniel, would you open our minds that we could understand Uh, the meaning and the significance of this text. Lord, would you open our hearts, would you soften our hearts toward you so that we would be receptive to its message and then seek to make application to our lives. And Lord, as always, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Now, as Daniel chapter 2 opened, we found King Nebuchadnezzar in a full-blown panic attack about a nightmare he'd had. So he wakes up, he's in a cold sweat, eyes wide as saucers, and then he orders all of his trusted advisors to come and help him. These were his um, palm readers, his crystal ball gazers, his fortune tellers, all of the men that he thought might be of some use to him. He gathers them around him and he says to them, I've just had this terrible nightmare. I need you to help me understand what it means. And the advisors say, sure, Nebuchadnezzar, we can help you. Tell us what you dreamed and we'll offer you an interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, 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 we're not going to do it that way. This is too important. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and what it means. That's the only way that I'll know your interpretation is true. Well, this exasperated his advisors, and they said, Nebuchadnezzar, there isn't a man alive who can do what you're asking. The only people who know the dreams of a man are the gods, and we know the gods have no dealings with us. They said, we're sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, we cannot help you. Well, this threw Nebuchadnezzar into a rage, and he ordered that all of his advisors should be slaughtered immediately. Daniel heard about the order from the king's captain, a man named Arioch. When Daniel heard what was about to happen to him and his friends and to all the other advisors, Daniel said, hold on there. He said, Arioch, I want you to go back to Nebuchadnezzar. Tell him that there is a man from Judah who can answer your questions. Make an appointment for me and I will help him. So Arioch goes and, and he does that. Daniel then gathers with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and together they hold a prayer meeting, and they just start begging God to reveal the content and meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to them. 
And God answers their request. God gives to Daniel the dream and its meaning. Once he's got that dream in hand, Daniel worships God for giving him the answer, and then he goes off to Nebuchadnezzar to make that appointment. Daniel looks Nebuchadnezzar in the eye and he says to him, O king, I know what you dreamed. You dreamed about an image of a huge colossus. And it was shining as brightly as the sun and it was terrifying in its appearance. And this colossus was comprised of four different metals of decreasing value. You saw a head of gold and then a chest and arms of silver. Then you saw a belly and thighs of bronze and then finally legs of iron. But the legs changed at the very bottom. They went from solid iron down to a mixture of iron and clay. He said, and then, O king, you saw a stone, a stone not made with human hands. And this stone was hurtled at the base of the Colossus, and it brought the whole thing down, reducing it all to powder. Then the powder blew away, and the stone reappeared. Suddenly that stone began to grow and it turned into a great mountain that covered the whole world. Nebuchadnezzar, that's what you dreamed. And Nebuchadnezzar said, yes, that is what I dreamed. Now what does it mean? And so Daniel began to unfold the meaning of this dream. Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, The dream that you had was a revelation from the God of heaven. He's revealing to you what the future holds for this world. And he said, that head of gold that you saw, that represents you and your empire, the Babylonian empire. God was revealing to you that your empire would be the most glorious in the world. But one day your empire will fall. And in its place, a new empire will come, the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the the chest and the arms of silver that you saw. And the Medo-Persian Empire, Daniel said, it'll have its day in the sun, but it too will collapse. Then it'll be replaced by the Empire of Bronze, the Grecian Empire. And for a while, the Grecian Empire will enjoy its day in the sun, but it too will collapse. And it'll give way to that Empire of Iron, That's the Roman Empire. And he explained how the Roman Empire would change over time. It would begin like solid iron. It would be a strong empire united under a single emperor. And it would continue in that state for some time. But then in the latter days of human history, that that solid empire would begin to crumble. It would break up into a confederation of semi-autonomous states. Some larger, some smaller, some weaker, some stronger. It would be plagued with internal conflicts. It would be an empire divided against itself. At the very end, it would consist of ten leaders ruling ten districts. And that, Nebuchadnezzar, is what you saw. Now, we noted last week that the Roman Empire really has persisted from the time of its founding right through to the present day, and it will continue to the very end of this age. 
And indeed, it has changed form. It's no longer called the Roman Empire anymore, and it's no longer ruled by a single man. Today, it's more of a conglomeration, like the feet of the iron and the clay. Today, it even goes by a new name, the European Union. But it still has a president, an executive council, a legislative body. It has a criminal court. It has a common currency. The old Roman Empire is still basically held together. It will continue to be a major political force in the world right through to the very end of the age, right through until that stone not made with hands comes and shatters it to pieces. And now we arrive at today's text, which again is Daniel 2, verses 44 through 49. In these verses, Daniel explains the final component of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He explains that stone, what the stone is. In fact, we find the meaning of that stone right in verse 44. Look at it with me. It says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That shall never be destroyed. So that is Daniel's interpretation of the stone. It is the kingdom of God. So the Colossus featured four human kingdoms. Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Grecian, and Roman. The stone that crushes the Colossus is the kingdom of God. Of course, the scriptures do speak to us about a universal kingdom of God, which has always existed. It exists right now. Psalm 97 speaks of this. That psalm reads, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So our Lord is reigning over his universe right now. He made it. He is sovereign over it. He rules it from his throne in heaven. And yet, my friends, the scriptures also speak to us of a future kingdom of God. What we might call a mediatorial kingdom which means that one day, God himself, through Christ, will literally, physically lead the governments of this world in a real earthly kingdom, and his son will reign from a real earthly throne. That is a future kingdom of God. God's plans to establish this future kingdom really, really forms the unifying center of our whole Bible. We find it in the common scriptural refrain, I will be their God, they will be my people. God himself will dwell among them and be their God. It was the great theme of the Old Testament prophets. It was the message of Christ, repent, the kingdom of God is coming. It was also the message of the apostles of Christ. And the coming kingdom of God is how our Bibles end. Remember in the book of Revelation, final chapters, first we learn about God's establishing a millennial kingdom, and then after that, the final defeat of Satan, creation of a new heavens and a new earth, and then the dwelling of God among men through His Son Jesus forever and ever. Friends, this coming kingdom of God is the central theme of all of Scripture, and it's held forth to us in Scripture as the consummation of all of God's plans. And it is God's final solution to all that is wrong with this world. 
Sin, suffering, and death, it all comes to an end when that future kingdom is established and made permanent. And all those who are redeemed by the blood of God's Son will be a part of that coming kingdom. And friends, this dream which God gave to Nebuchadnezzar on that fateful night, this was a dream about the coming of that future kingdom. The the stone thrust into the base of that colossus was the kingdom of God, thrust into the kingdoms of this world, shattering them all to bits and taking their place. The dream included five essential truths about this coming kingdom. Truths which God wants all of us to know, which he revealed to Daniel. Daniel explains these five truths in today's text. Truth number one about the coming kingdom of God, it will be divinely inaugurated. It will be divinely inaugurated. We see that in verse 44. Look at the verse again. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. God himself is going to establish this kingdom. This is really important to emphasize because for a lot of decades now, the so-called mainline churches have been teaching that the kingdom of God is actually a human institution. It'll be brought about by human ingenuity, and it'll be ruled by humans. Mainline denominations have been teaching for a long time that, that someday, somehow, we humans are finally going to figure out how to all get along together. We're going to figure out how to, how to create government systems which will ensure that everybody is properly fed and housed and that they all get their proper medical care. We're going to create policies that preserve the uh, environment. And once all this happens, of course, then there will be no more wars or murders or thefts because everybody's needs will all be met. And this will be the kingdom of God. Through our own efforts, we will progressively bring about a utopian society. It'll be done by man, controlled by man, but it will be called the kingdom of God. Every now and then you will hear uh, progressive Christians refer to new government policies and laws as, as building the kingdom. Or they'll say the kingdom of God is coming through these policies. That's their perspective. But friends, the scriptures say to us, no, it is not going to happen that way. See, the scriptures teach us that we humans have fallen natures. And these fallen natures are not going away until we are glorified. Fallen people cannot create utopias. They can only create broken systems, like the ones that we all live under today. No, the only way the kingdom of God will come is if God himself, in the person of his son Jesus, directly and dramatically breaks into this world, puts away sin himself, establishes righteousness himself, changes human hearts so that they are able and willing to come under his lordship, and then he takes his place on an earthly throne as king over it all. That's the only way the kingdom of God is going to come. According to Daniel here, that's exactly how it's going to happen. Truth number one about the kingdom of God is that God himself will bring it about. Now, truth number two about this coming kingdom. 
kingdom of God will appear at the end of the present age. The end of the present age. Again, verse 44. It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Now, who are those kings? Well, he's referring there to those ten kings ruling over the fractured Roman Empire at the very end of the present dispensation. He says, when those kings are in power, then the kingdom will come. It's a future event. It's an event that will close the present dispensation and open a new era of history. Now, this verse provides another important corrective to modern thinking because, you see, it's quite common in our day, even among conservative Christians, to equate the kingdom of God with the first coming of Christ and with the birth of the New Testament church. They speak of the church as the kingdom of God. But, of course, that idea just doesn't cohere with today's text. Do you remember what Christ's first advent was like? Christ came to the earth in humility. He came to the earth quietly. He was born in a manger. Most of the world didn't even know he had come. He was raised in the home of a carpenter, lived in abject poverty his whole life. Most of his life, he was in complete obscurity. And besides that, he never, ever held a position of political power. See, that's nothing like what we see here in Daniel chapter 2. No, when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to enter dramatically and immediately. And when it comes, it will smash all human kingdoms and take their place. You see, there's no correspondence between Christ's first coming and what we see here. Besides this, at Christ's first advent, the Roman Empire was a unified kingdom under a single ruler. Caesar Augustus was his name. But Daniel explains here that when the kingdom of God comes, it will be after that unified empire has collapsed, and now we've got a confederacy of kings ruling. That wasn't true at Christ's first advent. Will be true at Christ's second advent. And then thirdly, we see that throughout the days of Christ's first advent, he made it clear that he was not interested in overthrowing the kingdoms of men. For example, in Mark chapter 12, um, scribes and Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, should we pay our taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus says this to them. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, what was Jesus saying there? He was saying that at this stage in history, you need to be subservient to the governments of men. You obey their just laws, you pay your taxes, you live under their authority, but you also render to God the things that He are due. Then in John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000, it says the crowds were so excited, they wanted to just force Jesus to become king. They wanted to rush Him right into Jerusalem, give Him His throne. What did Jesus do? He slipped out of the crowd and escaped. He didn't want that throne, not yet. Besides all of that, you know, the New Testament epistles, which were written to instruct the New Testament church, they never once tell Christians to seek the overthrow of the world's governments or other systems. 
Instead, we Christians are instructed to submit to the governments of the world, to pray for kings and all in authority, to pursue peaceful and quiet lives, and to make disciples among the nations. So no, the idea that the kingdom of God arrived with the first coming of Christ and the birth of the New Testament church, that just doesn't cohere with what we see here in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was not about Christ's first advent. It wasn't about the church. No, this is talking about Christ's dramatic second advent and the forceful entrance of God's mediatorial kingdom. My friends, the church is not the kingdom. What we are, though, is a worldwide spiritual family ordained of God and tasked with making disciples among all the nations. And the disciples that we make now in the church will be the citizens of that future kingdom. So the first truth about the kingdom of God revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it will be divinely inaugurated. Second truth we learn, it is not a present reality. It will come at the end of the present age. And it will come forcefully and dramatically. It will coincide with the Dramatic return of Christ. Now, truth number three about this coming kingdom of God. It will triumph over all. When it comes, it will triumph over all. Again, look at verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end. Down to verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. You see, first came the Babylonian Empire, the world's first superpower, and it was glorious, but it collapsed. Then arose the Medo-Persian Empire, but that empire also collapsed. Then came the Greek Empire, that one collapsed too. Then came the Roman Empire. It has already lost its former glory. One day it will collapse completely. Every human empire, no matter how grand it may appear, will fall. They're created by finite people. They are finite themselves. Those kingdoms will fall. Every last one of them, it says, will be conquered in the end by the kingdom of God. Medo-Persia absorbed Babylon. Greek absorbed Medo-Persia. The Roman absorbed the Greek. And the kingdom of God will absorb them all when it comes. You know, the book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible, speak to this. In Revelation chapter 19, we have this great picture of the second coming of Christ. Listen to how it describes his return. The Apostle John writes, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Christ. 
And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, my friends, the kingdom of God, when it comes, it's not just going to be one nation existing alongside many others. It's not going to be a a sprinkling of little outposts all over the world like the New Testament church. No, Christ is going to come as a mighty warrior. He will lay waste to the ungodly governments of the world. He will assume a throne on the earth and he will become the king of it all. He will conquer all that resist him. So truth one, the kingdom will be divinely inaugurated. Truth two, it will come at the end of the age. Truth three, it will triumph over all that resist it. Now truth number four, when the kingdom comes, it will endure forever and ever. Look again at verse 44. Notice how many times this is emphasized. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, here's the first, that shall never be destroyed. Second time, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And then at the end of the verse, it shall stand forever. Three times in one verse, the everlasting nature of the coming kingdom of God is emphasized. You see, once it finally comes, it will never ever be overthrown. It will last forever and ever. How could it be overthrown when the ruler of that kingdom will be God Almighty in the person of Jesus Christ? No one can overpower Him, and no one ever will. It will stand forever. But understand, friends, that an everlasting kingdom does not mean a boring kingdom. No, the kingdom of God will be everlasting, but it will also be endlessly interesting. It'll begin with a millennial phase, a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. This will fulfill all of God's covenant promises to national Israel. And then time will give way to eternity, but the kingdom will continue on. At that point, with no sin, no sickness, no death, no rebellion against God. Absolute utopia. And in that everlasting kingdom, there will be languages spoken, there will be music composed, there will be art produced, there will be architecture, there will be meaningful work to do and travel, there will be natural wonders to behold, spiritual ecstasies unlike you've ever known before. You'll never get bored, you'll never long for something new, you'll never exhaust new discoveries about God. Eternity will be a progressive state for us. Always learning more, always growing, always seeing new things, always experiencing new discoveries, always drawing closer in our communion to God. Truth number five. The kingdom of God will surely come. We find this at the end of verse 45. It says, A great God has made known to the king which shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. 
See, the coming of this kingdom is as sure as the character of the God who promises it. It will not fail to come. It will arrive exactly when God ordains it. These are the five truths about the kingdom of God that God himself would have us know. Now, very quickly, though, let's look at verses 46 to 49. Let's find out how this story concludes. Verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Verse 47, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery. Now friends, that verse gives us the lesson of the whole chapter. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's revealing to Daniel all of it. The, the future that is unfolded in Daniel's prophecy, all of it is meant to convey to us that there is a God in heaven, that this God is all sovereign. He's in control of the course of human history. He knows everything before it ever comes to pass. He has a plan to bring his kingdom to the earth, and it can never be thwarted. That's the whole lesson of this dream. And of this chapter. Don't miss that lesson. And then it goes on, verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are Daniel's three godly friends. Over the affairs of the province of Babylon... But Daniel remained at the king's court. I love verse 29 because it shows us that Daniel did not forget his friends. Remember, they were there at the beginning of this whole episode. When the order came down from Nebuchadnezzar that all the advisors should be slaughtered, Daniel was able to delay that order. Then he gathered those friends together and they prayed together that God would, would reveal the answer to the dream. Well, then Daniel went. He revealed the dream's contents to Nebuchadnezzar, the contents and the meaning. And now that it's all over, their lives have been spared, Daniel thinks about his friends again, the friends that prayed with him. And he ensures that his three godly friends ride his coattails right up to the highest echelons of Babylon. Daniel was a godly man. Now, friends, if I can finish with some words of application, what should we do in light of all these truths about the coming kingdom of God? I have a few suggested applications. First, I think we need to get ourselves ready for the coming kingdom. We need to get ready for the coming kingdom. This kingdom is yet future, but you can get your citizenship for it right now. And the way you do that is by bowing before the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will sit on the throne of that kingdom. You repent of your sins. You put all of your faith in Him. You publicly testify to your faith in Him through baptism and church membership. You come gladly under Christ. If you do that, God will forgive your sins. He'll give you a new righteousness, not your own, and you will get your citizenship card into that future kingdom. 
So if you've not done so yet, will you do it today? You can pray to God right from your seat, asking forgiveness of sin, declaring your allegiance to the Lord Jesus. If you're not ready for that, but you are curious, you can catch me after the service and we can talk about it in the hallway, maybe set up an appointment for later in the week. One-on-one, we can work our way through the scriptures and you can see from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is Savior and that by embracing him, you become a part of the kingdom that God will establish. Friends, we should get ourselves ready for this coming kingdom. But then secondly, I think we should all be working to build the kingdom as well. Now, I mentioned earlier that the church is not the kingdom, but the church does have a relation to that future kingdom. You see, the disciples of Christ that we make today in the church will be the citizens of that future kingdom. And so if we want the kingdom of God to be populated, overflowing with people... We've got to be about the work of the church. We've got to be reaching our community. We've got to be planting new churches in other communities. We've got to work to revitalize struggling churches in established communities. We need to be sending out overseas missionaries, Bible translators, teachers. We need to be making disciples of all the nations with every ounce of energy that we've got. We need to give of our time, talents, and treasures to bring as many to Christ as we can because everyone we bring to Christ will be in that kingdom. Let's get ourselves ready for the kingdom. Let's work to build that kingdom. And then finally, let's pray for the quick arrival of that kingdom. That's what Jesus taught us to do. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? It says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then the first prayer request Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray for the arrival of his kingdom. This is also how the Bible ends. Very last verses of the book of Revelation, Jesus declares, Surely I am coming soon. And the reply from his people, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, when that kingdom comes, every good thing about life here will continue on. Every bad thing will be taken away. The kingdom is God's ultimate solution to all that is wrong with the world. And all redeemed by the blood of Christ will populate it when it comes. And so let us be praying, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together now. Father, you've offered us a remarkable portion of Scripture this week. In fact, over the last several weeks, as we've looked at this great dream that you gave to Nebuchadnezzar, and we've considered the interpretation of that dream, now climaxing in in that stone and its representation, or it's, it's representing your kingdom. Lord, might you give us a longing for that kingdom? Might you give us a zeal to work for the building of that kingdom? Lord, might you help every heart here to search within and ensure that that it is ready for your kingdom, should it come today. Lord, I pray that you would use this church in remarkable ways here in Marshall and surrounding communities and overseas as we seek to bring more people 
to Christ, that your kingdom might be filled to overflowing with citizens. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.